what ended up happening is like a, you you write a book and you it becomes a bestseller or whatever, and it's not so much I just feel like oh I've reached a level of talent or ability. I'm up here with like the top level people. It doesn't feel like that to me at all. What it feels like is I go like, oh shit, I was able to do this thing that this other person was able to do. Maybe like, maybe we're all idiots. I'm like, oh, if I was able to do it, this thing, like maybe, maybe the people who like, if we're talking about movies, maybe the people who make movies, maybe they're not a million times smarter than me as well. Or maybe the people who like built a building aren't a million times smart. Maybe they just put the work in and that's why they were able to do it. You know what I'm saying? Hello, Airplane Mode listeners. Welcome back to another episode. This season we're tackling confidence. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. How today's guest came to be on the show is a bit of a funny story. About a week ago, Shea Serrano tweeted at me about wearing a coat over his sweats, asking if we could put him in GQ for that reason. Got a fair amount of online traction because Shea has a very engaged following from his time as a writer, which we'll get into. We'll also get into how he has leveraged that engaged following to actually do some incredible charity work. So one of my colleagues, Cam Wolf, mocked up a digital cover of GQ with Shea on it in his coat over his sweats. We sent it back to him. It was a fun moment. And then I DM'd him and I was like, oh, Shea Serrano, very confident dude. We should have him on airplane mode. So I DM'd him. He was into it. He, I told him about the theme of confidence for the season. He was like, oh, the whole bet on yourself thing. And I was like, that is a perfect rubric. Because throughout his career, Shea has been teaching a clinic on how to bet on yourself. I will let him tell the details of his story because it is incredible and it's more fun and interesting to hear him tell it. But to give you a gist, he was working as a teacher when extenuating circumstances arose that left him needing more money for his family. So that eventually led to him becoming a writer. He started to write. He wrote for a small local newspaper called the Near Northwest Banner. That ended up leading to the Houston Press, which led to the LA Weekly, which led to ESPN's Grantland under Bill Simmons, which led to The Ringer, where he still writes today. He's also written for a place called GQ. And also along the way, he managed to write three New York Times bestsellers, The Rap Yearbook, Basketball and Other Things, and most recently, Movies and Other Things. So you want to talk about something that takes confidence? It would be one day you say, I'm going to start writing. And then not so many years later, through a lot of talent and a lot of hard work, I don't want to make it sound as simple as, oh, this thing just happened because Shay clearly is very, very good and very funny. And he also busted his ass. But he went from saying, I'm going to be a writer to writing three New York Times bestsellers. I think it's worth a listen. Granted, I'm biased. But if you listen to Shay's telling, he's not any more talented. He's not any less plagued by self-doubt. He just bet on himself and had the confidence that would work out. And it has tremendously. So Shay, I'm glad you tweeted at me. I'm glad we could get you on. And I hope you guys learn a little something about confidence. So the first thing I want to start with is actually a question I'm stealing from Chris Gayomali, who I believe was the last person to interview you for GQ. You know, I think that you are a a very well-loved man. Uh, (laughs) So two quotes I have here that when I was reading today, I found the first of which says, turns out they're both, these are both uh, stories or interviews with you. One said, one of the writers who has spent some time with you said, turns out you can be wildly successful just by making everyone love you, which I thought was a good quote, although drastically undersells how hard you've worked and how talented you are. Um, (laughs) And then the other one says, 
The bottom line is that Serrano just seems like someone you want to have around, which might be the best possible currency on the internet. And both of those quotes feel very true to me. But the question I want to ask you, again, stolen from Chris Gayamali, is who is your first hater? My first hater? You know, what's interesting is I don't know. The two quotes that you said right there are, are very thoughtful and nice things. I have no idea who said them because I do a, I do a really good job of not reading anything about myself on the internet like huh. that's a I, I like actively work toward that oh so wow whoever that was let me let me say thank you to them because i probably didn't say it when i needed to uh my first hater it was probably professionally it was probably a this guy that i went to school with and he i think he wanted to be a writer as well so when i started popping up and and, and like the houston circles doing writer things he followed a little bit like right behind me to comment on my on like the first few articles I was writing and he would just always say something not nice and yeah he was the, he was the first one he he didn't stick around too long though like you you only have enough energy to do that for a little while you know what i'm saying what about as a kid did you have any did you have any haters growing up oh yeah a ton of them i'm sure but i don't know i don't know if do you count a bully as a hater yeah i think so definitely oh yeah then a bunch there were a bunch. There's a guy, I've mentioned him in, in interviews before. His name is Albert, Albert Vidalis. And I went to middle school with him. He was like a lineman on the middle school football team, like this kind of kid. Uh-huh. And just a total prick. And he was he stayed picking on me. And I never forgot. I never forgot him. And also this other kid named named Jose, who eventually I ended up getting in a fucking fist fight with. Oh wow. Because I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Those were like probably my two first actual in my life haters. How did the fist fight go? Uh, I won the fist fight. Nice. It was it was one of the one of the few fist fights that I've gotten into that I actually won, but I only won it because I cheated. What happened was we, this was in high school, so this kid started picking on me in like seventh grade or something like that. We were on the basketball team together, and he was just like a better version of me. He okay. was like cooler than me. He was more handsome than me. He was better at basketball than me. He was smarter than me. So he just wanted to remind me about that every day is what it seemed like. Huh. And so he was just always messing with me, always messing with me. And in, in high school, this was in 10th grade. So we're talking three years now. I'm, I'm in the cafeteria area. I'm walking with a buddy of mine. And just at, from behind, I feel a big shove, just fucking huh. shove the shit out of me. And I was holding a like a a little basket of fried shrimp and french fries that you buy for like two bucks from the cafeteria. And in my other hand, I had a Barks root beer. And the guy guy shoved me, Jose shoved me. I like stumbled forward. I dropped my french fries and shrimp. And I knew it was him before I even turned around. And I turned around and I saw him. And I was just at that point filled with rage instantly from three years of being picked on that I just fucking chucked the, the Barks root beer at his head as hard as I could, like in his face. Wow. And it hit him in the face, and he was totally, like at that point, I'm already winning the fight. And he's like stumbled back, and I just jumped on him. I'm in tears at this point. It's just all coming. It's like a fucking, you remember a Christmas story when Ralphie finally beats up that one kid? It was like uh, it was like a Mexican version of that. And I jump on top of him, and I'm just fucking, I'm getting in every shot that I can. I'm getting in three years worth of the shots wow. and then they pulled you know uh, somebody pulled me off a teacher pulled me off and then there you go well i'm glad you won the fight but it sounds like a shameful waste of a great barks root beer 
<laughs> I, you know what I, th- I thought about after that? I wish, I wish that I had the foresight. Barks had a tagline at the time. Is it Barks has bite or something like that? And I wish I would have thrown the soda at him, beaten him up, and then stood up and then been like, Barks really does have bite. Like as they <laughs> drag me away. You know what I'm saying? Like some fucking action movie shit. Oh, that would have been amazing. How confident were you growing up? Like, did those bullies get in your head? Did they have a profound impact on you? Or what was sort of your, your confidence like growing up? I I think it was probably pretty regular, normal amount until maybe late middle school, early high school. And I started, I was able to like get my feet under me. And then also I'm growing up in a house where, number one, I'm the only, I'm the only son. I've got three younger sisters. So it's me, my mom, my dad, my grandma, my three younger sisters and me. Uh, so I'm the only boy. I'm also the firstborn kid. So I'm the I'm the oldest. And then also it became clear, maybe like around tenth or eleventh grade, that I was headed toward I was going to graduate, mm-hmm. which where I was living at the time was not like a thing that everybody did. I looked up the stats recently for the neighborhoods, neighborhood in uh, South San Antonio, and only like forty nine percent of the kids there graduated. So it's like a one, you know, you got a fifty fifty shot of getting out of there. Like my mom didn't graduate high school, for example. So when it became clear that I was headed in that direction, then, you know, she was gassing me up. My my uncles are gassing me up. Everybody was like in my head convincing me that I was like this, the family savior or whatever, mm. because I had, a, because I had a 73 average in math and I was going to make it out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So right around then I really started like, I started feeling it a little bit. And then once I got to college and I, I really, they were like, Hey, guess what? You have to take a bunch of fucking remedial classes because you're really dumb. And I was like, oh, there goes there goes that confidence I've built up. <laughs> now, have you, because I, I know on Twitter you talk about sort of the love of being petty and mm-hmm. just sort of like wanting to do something because somebody has said that you maybe weren't able to do it. How much of that sort of right. grudge mentality or like chip on the shoulder has actually driven you? Uh, most of it. The only two reasons I really ever tried to do anything it's not, I, I wish I was more mature. I wish I had like, I wish I was in pursuit of self-actualization or something like that. But it's never been that. It's always been because A, I was trying to impress somebody like uh, like Laramie, my wife, who I started dating in college. I was either trying to impress her or I was trying to like fucking shove it in somebody's face that they said I wasn't going to be able to to do a thing. So those are the two that were pushing me really more than more than anything else. Now, people who claim to be doing that out of self-actualization, do we think they're just lying? Because like one thing I love about you is how you're <laughs> radically honest. And it occurs to me that maybe that's why everyone does everything they do and just few people are as comfortable in themselves as you to actually admit it. I, I think you might be giving me more credit than I deserve. <laughs> I'm certain there are people who've, who are just... Like Laramie is a perfect example. Laramie does, the only reason she does stuff is because she wants to do it and she thinks it's going to make her a better person. I've never seen her like do stuff out of pettiness, not anything big, like a, on a big scale. So I imagine there are a lot of people uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. How did you get up the confidence to pass her a note? I read that you originally met her by passing her a note in sociology class. Is that true? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so this is in, this is in college and... Laramie is a very attractive woman. And so what I'm doing is I'm looking, I see Laramie, I'm like, oh, I would like to talk to this woman. I'd like to get her, to know her a little bit better. But at this point, I've been in college for, for you know, 
eight months, nine months, I, I have begun to understand the, the sort of political angle of college, like uh-huh. the social angle of college. So I knew because she was an attractive woman that she was probably getting hit on multiple times a day, every single day since she arrived at school. And so I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to be another one of those people. So I tried to think of a clever way to do it. And I didn't have her email. I didn't, I didn't want to send her an email if I could find it. So I, I learned on Cruel Intentions that that is not a romantic thing to do. You don't just email somebody. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll just handwrite a note and, and like pass it to her like we're in fucking middle school again or whatever. And then I did that. And it's like a very dorky thing, but it worked. I was like, the, I was the one person who did that. So there we are. That's amazing. Do you remember what the note said? It said something along the lines of, this is who I am. I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Here's my my number if you want to talk sometime. And then I fucking booked it out of the class as soon as I sent it to her. I was like, eh, it's probably going to work out that great for me, so I'm just going to get ahead of it. And then I just left. And then, uh, you know, two days later or something, she called. Wow. But yeah. that that it's that's so great because, I mean, maybe I'm making something out of nothing, but that seems to me to be the same sort of like radical authenticity that you bring to Twitter. You know, like just this is me. If you like it, here here I am. And I think that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the I don't know if it's the the best way for me to be, but it's certainly the the easiest. Cuz if you start I don't know, if you start trying to just build up a thing that you aren't already naturally then this means I you have to remember a bunch of shit. I don't have to remember, <laughs> I, like I don't have to remember lies that I've told because I just, I'm, if I'm just going to tell the truth, then that's you know that's in your head. You you were talking about too about being in high school and how um, at least now like 49 percent of people graduate, and so it wasn't a sure thing. So when you were coming up in high school, like what did you sort of hope to be, or what did you think you you might be like when you when you grew up? I did the thing that everybody that age does, where you just imagine whatever unrealistic dream it is you want to try to chase. I thought I was going to be in the NBA. I was like, I was a hundred percent certain that that's what I was going to do. I was going to play point guard for the Spurs Mm. Um, because I'm growing up again in South San Antonio. Everybody in this area basically looks like me, which is like overwhelmingly Hispanic population. So every room that I walk into, we're all about the same size. We're all about the same height. We're all about the same skill level. So if you just work a little bit harder than everybody else, you're going to be better than everybody else. So I thought I was really good at basketball. I like genuinely thought I was extremely talented. And then you go, I go to college and I'm like, oh, I'm going to try out for the team. They've got like walk-on tryouts. And you get there and oh shit, everybody's a foot taller than you. And their shoulders are twice as wide as yours. And they're faster than you are. And they're more talented than you are. And you just, you realize you're not going to be in the NBA when you can't even think about competing against a college player. Well, talking about things that you never imagined, I mean, your career is is unbelievable in terms of how you sort of became a writer but never set out to be one. Yeah. I'll let you tell that story because I don't want to tell it for you, but I just think it's such a fascinating, like, how did you get into writing originally? The short version of the story is Laramie and I were both teaching at the time. We were getting married. She was pregnant with twins. And a few months into the pregnancy, she had some pregnancy complications. 
So she had to go to the hospital and they did like this emergency surgery. And it was like a really wild time. It was super sucky. Uh, and they're like, hey, you can't work anymore. You have to be on bed rest for the next few months. If you get up, the babies are going to come out. And if they come out, you're going to die. And they're going to die. And, you know, so good luck. So all of a sudden, we're going from living off of two teacher salaries, which you can do if it's two people living in Houston. You're both making about 40, 45 grand a year. Uh-huh. That's, you know, you can, you can live that way. But now we went from that to all of a sudden we're preparing for a family of four because we're having twins. And now we're making $45,000 a year. And it just wasn't, it wasn't enough. It was like I sat down, I looked at the bills and I'm like, oh shit. Every two weeks I get a check that's about a thousand bucks, 1100 bucks. So I'm getting 2,200 bucks a month. Our rent alone is $1,600. Wow. And now you have 600 bucks left and you've got a cell phone bill and you've got a uh, a car note or insurance or whatever. Like the, the, the numbers weren't in our favor. Mm-hmm. I needed a way to make extra money. I was applying at like Target and Papado grocery stores, whatever, but nobody would hire me because I already a full-time job. And so I just was like straight up Googling work from home jobs at, at home one night and writing was one of them. Writer was on the list. And I was like, oh, it had like a little section. What do you need to be a writer? You need a computer and you need the internet, and that's basically it. I was like, well, I have those two things, so I guess I'll try to do that. And that's how all that shit started. And you know, in the beginning, I wasn't trying to do nothing but keep us afloat until Laramie could go back to work uh-huh. in a few months. And uh, you know, six, seven months into it, we were like, oh, I don't know if this is like a viable career option, but it can help supplement the money for a little while. And that's that was like the how it all started. I didn't have any journalism experience. I didn't know anybody. I, all I had was the computer and the internet, and I figured that shit out. And, and so, how much confidence did you have at the beginning? Like, were you like, "Oh, I can do this," or were you kind of like, "Let's throw some shit at the wall and see what happens"? It was more the second thing. Okay, because I knew uh, when I'm looking at the bills, I was like, "I only I need to find like 500 bucks. Uh-huh. That's what I need to like get us through each month. I need 500 extra dollars." And the stuff I was reading on the internet, this was before I knew anything. And I'm reading stuff on the internet. And it's like, oh, here's how you make six figures as a freelancer. And I was like, oh, shit, these writers are getting paid. That's I, I didn't know until later on that that's really not how it works for mostly everybody. Yeah. But I was like, okay, well, if people are making twelve, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year, I should be able to, I mean, a, a month writing, I should be able to find 500 bucks. So I'm just going to pitch everybody and try everything and- Hopefully it works. And so did you have a, because I read that you you were like, I'm going to at least send a pitch or two a week. Like, did you keep yourself on a strict schedule? Oh, yeah. I was, dude, I was pitching so much shit all of the time. <laughs> because if you, you know, I, I read in my little books that I bought about freelancing that you're going to have a very low success rate, especially in the beginning. You might pitch 25 things and maybe you hear back about one. So I was like, okay, yeah. I got I got to do that. I got to pitch 25 things every week or whatever it was. And I was just I was just going. I was hitting every editor's email I could find. I was hitting them up if it, even if it didn't make sense. And in the beginning, you're just all, all you're really looking for is somebody to email you back and you get a you get that email back even if it's a no, you just are like, "All right, cool. I'm getting somewhere." You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, well, I imagine that could be discouraging, but to but that's an interesting like I sort of love that way of thinking about it. Like get, even getting that no is a step above from not hearing back. 
yeah. sort of like you're building a house brick by brick and that's maybe the second brick. But I think it'd be easy to look at that second brick and be like, that's a shitty brick. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it just felt it just felt good, especially especially if you go like a long time. I, I That's probably like the first month or two where I'm pitching shit and, and you just hear nothing. So when you do hear something back, especially if it's at like a big place, it just means a lot to you. I'll never forget... Early on in my career, I was, I, again, I'm pitching everybody all the time, any place that I can find an email for. And I got, I, I ended up finding an email for this guy named Steve Candell. Do you know Steve Candell by any chance? I don't. At the time he worked at Spin. I'm not sure where he works now, but I got his email and I pitched him a, a an idea. It was like a really shitty idea too. I was trying everything, but I pitched it to him and he emailed back. And it was the first time that somebody of like, at a, at a publication of that stature, emailed back. And he was like, hey, thanks for sending this. This doesn't seem right. He made like a joke and he just made it. It was like a very cool gesture uh-huh. for him. To, he didn't have to do that. It would have been very easy for him to just delete it. How much did self-doubt plague you? And the reason I'm asking is because I'm doing that thing where I'm projecting my experience, like trying to imagine what I would be like in that scenario. And I mm-hmm. just know how often I come up with pitches and then I'm like, that's a dumb idea don't send that. That's embarrassing. And I just don't <laughs> send it. You know what I mean? And, I'm, and yeah. I'm just curious with that volume of pitches, were you just like, I, I just got to send them out because I need to get a yes from somewhere. Like what yeah. was your relationship with self-doubt like? Well, it's it's always there, even now, uh, even all, all of these years later, even after whatever little amount of success I've been able to put together, I have in my pocket. It's still, it's it, that never goes away. There's no way around it because what ends up happening is you pitch something. I like a, It's a Wednesday today when we're recording this. I have already pitched like three or four things this week that all got turned down, huh. every single one of them. And every time a thing gets turned down, it feels less like they're turning the idea down and more like they're turning you down. You know what I'm saying? And I know that's mm-hmm. not what's happening because people pitch me stuff all the time too. And I'm just like, oh, that's not the right thing for me. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the person, but that's in your head. So that's always there. There's no way around it. There's no way to like make it any easier or make it sting a little bit less. It's like you can read whatever advice you want. I can tell you whatever I want. But this is like me trying to explain to you what it's going to feel like to get punched in the face. Like eventually you just have to get punched in the face. None of the words I say are going to make it hurt any less. So with the self-doubt, it's always there. It never goes away. But also I know, especially at this point, that I have this much bills every single month that, I, that I'm responsible for. And if I don't do the work, then I don't get the money. If I don't get the money, then I don't pay the bills. And if I don't pay the bills, then everything in my life will start to fall apart. Hmm. So, you know, uh, it's either you're going to do the thing or you're not going to do the thing. The self-doubt is going to be there regardless. Man, I fucking love that. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> I just, okay. I get so geeked on this stuff. I'm curious where to unpack where and when you came to that realization. Like, do you remember having that conversation with yourself? Is that something you've always had inside or like, where did that, that come from? I know exactly where like the, the genesis of that was and okay. it didn't have anything to do with writing. It didn't have anything to do with anything at all, really. But when I first started thinking about this stuff was, I was in college and I didn't have a a job for like the first three years of college or whatever. Uh What I was doing is I had, I started playing pool and this is going to sound really dorky, but I started playing pool like a lot. Right before I left for college, I was playing, you know, every, every other day after school. And then when I got to college, they had a pool hall on campus and I started playing there like every day, fucking six, seven, eight hours a day. And I was getting like kind of good at it. And I started 
gambling for money. I was just like playing pool for money. And not like in the movie version when you're like pretending to be drunk and you're hustling somebody. <laughs> it, it didn't work like that. It was like if you're in the pool hall long enough, people recognize you, you recognize the other people, and you're like, oh, okay, you play and I play. We're going to play for $10. Not a lot of money, but you know, if you're in college and you make $30 in a day, you fucking feel like you're the king of the world. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that a lot. Now, remember, I was in the middle of a, of a game, of a set, is what we call it. We we're playing a, a race to five, first one to win five games. And I was playing with this guy named Randy. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like super nervous because it's one of the first or second times that I've ever played for like 10 or $20. And I'm real, real nervous. And uh, a buddy of mine, this guy named Damon, who I'm sitting there talking to, he's like in my ear. I'm telling him, he's like, I can see how nervous you are, blah, 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 whatever. And he goes, listen one of you two is going to win. Why not you? And for whatever reason, that just stuck in my head. And I was like, oh shit, you're 100% right. Either I'm going to win or he's going to win. Somebody's going to win here. So it might as well be me. And I just have sort of tried to carry that forward with all of the stuff, any of the stuff that I'm trying to do, any of the stuff that I want to do, it's going to get done eventually. So, you know, why, why can't it be me who's the one who does it? Huh. And did you, like, what point did you feel... If you felt at all, I mean, I know you, you said in there that self-doubt's always there, but like at what point after you started having some writing success, did you feel like, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer now, you know? Or have you not have you not gotten there yet? The very first time I felt that was when I started working for Bill Simmons at Grandland. Okay. Because uh, prior to then, I was freelancing and just sort of pitching everywhere and, and making my little... $20 for a blog post or $200 for a blog post or article or whatever. I was like just cobbling it all together. And then Bill Simmons showed up and we are talking about, I, I think at this point, there's no question anymore. We're talking about the most successful sports journalist of all time. Mm-hmm. Like with the recent sell of the ringer and him like orchestrating all of that stuff. I think that, I think he is exactly that. He's the most successful sports journalist that has ever lived. I don't think it's a I don't think that's an unfair thing to say. So you have somebody like that and he's just sort of shows up and he gets in your ear and he's very good about this. He gets in your ear and he's like you can do this, you have what it takes, you can make this a career. I want to help you. Like Bill Simmons shows up and he's doing that in my ear. This is a guy who I've been reading on the internet at this point for a good long while and beyond just that, he's like putting some money behind it too and he's like how much do I need to pay you so that you don't have to freelance anymore, you just write for me now. And I was like, oh, I need this much. And he goes, cool, done. And then when that happened, you're like, oh, shit. This is, like, this is way better than freelancing, first of all. But also, I feel like, I, I've, like a, a person who has done this already is telling me that it can be done and that I, that I can do it if I just sort of follow the template. Uh, that was when, it, when, for me, I said, oh, maybe this is like a thing I can do for real. Even at that point, did you think, how conceivable was it to you that you'd have three New York Times bestsellers? Oh, no, I never, I never... <laughs> That wasn't even a thing. I never, I thought, I never thought I'd write a book. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to do anything except write a few blog posts for for Grantland or for the Ringer or whatever. I thought that was going to be like the extent of it. And so, does that sort of inform? Like, I'm thinking now about. Um, there's a guy who writes for GQ. He's our wellness columnist, and his name's Joe Holder. And he talks about how the first time he ran a marathon made him realize, like, oh shit, I never, like, I didn't think I could run five miles, let alone 26. And now that I've run 26 miles, he's like, it literally changes the way you perceive of yourself because you're like, I, I, what else could I do that I didn't imagine I could do? Yeah. Have you had a similar feeling like all along the way, like, you know, getting 
you know, starting to write it all and then getting to Grantland and The Ringer and then writing three New York Times bestsellers. Like, does what he said ring true to your experience as well? Or, or how do you sort of react to that? I think it does. Uh, like, I understand what he's saying. For me, I think maybe it worked a little bit differently. Because what ended up happening is like you, you write a book and you it becomes a bestseller or whatever. And it's not so much I just feel like, oh, I've reached a level of talent or ability. I'm up here with like the top level people. It doesn't feel like that to me at all. What it feels like is I go like, oh shit, I was able to do this thing that this other person was able to do. Maybe we're all idiots. I feel like I've always, you know, you just sort of feel like an idiot at all times. I do anyway. I'm like, oh, if I was able to do it, this thing, like maybe, maybe the people who like, if we're talking about movies, maybe the people who make movies, maybe they're not a million times smarter than me as well. Or maybe the people who like built a building aren't a million times smarter. Maybe they just put the work in and that's why they were able to do it. You know what I'm saying? It didn't make me feel smarter or, or more capable, but it just made me feel like, oh, maybe, maybe there's no magic trick here. Maybe this is just, you know, you, you go through the process, you understand what it takes. You're like, oh, maybe, maybe if I just do this with everything, I, I have a decent shot at it. That's so interesting. It like sort of it like rips a seam in the fabric of the universe in some ways. It's like, makes yeah. you, that's, that's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's interesting, what strikes me is you said earlier that when you wanted to be an NBA player, you were sort of like, if I just work harder than everyone else, I could do it. Mm-hmm. And right there, that answer also came back to work ethic, which is like, if you just put the work in, you can do it. Like you sort of be amazed by what you could do. Yeah, it's really it's really helpful once you start doing that because there's definitely a, a class of people who are just innately more talented than everybody else just born to do a thing if we're talking about writing for example i might i might read a column by by wesley morris or sean finnessy or gia tolentino or doreen st Felix. i might read a column by these people and go like oh shit i could never i can never write in this way i can never think in this way. There's that group of people absolutely that are out there. But for the most part, everybody else, the other 97% of us, we're all operating with like the same basic tools. And it's just a matter of who's going to outwork the other people. You're either going to have a great connection, you're going to be born into a thing, or you're going to have to fucking outwork all the other people who are trying to, to do the thing. So I didn't have the first one. So I guess I'll try the second one. (laughs) It strikes me that you, because I know from reading the interview you did with Chris at GQ, you were sometimes staying up till two or three to write and then waking up at 5.45 to prepare for school. And Mm -hmm. so I imagine you were tired and, you know, sharing some of the things you were sharing about the extenuating circumstances that led to you writing with Laramie being sort of having to be on bed rest and the medical complications there and with the bills hanging over your head. It just seems like, that is a situation that could put an immense amount of pressure on you. And then in addition to sort of the the schedule you were keeping up, and yet your writing has always had this sort of like vivacity and fun and joy to it. And I, so I guess I'm just curious how, when you were working that hard and you did have that sort of external pressure on you, how you were able to maintain, granted, I haven't read, I apologize, I haven't read all of your pieces for the Near Northwest Banner. <laughs> But like, you, it seems like you've always had a similar sort of voice and maybe I'm wrong. I'm making an assumption, but I'm just curious how you kept up that like fun, loving, joyful spirit through all that. Well, because in, in most instances I have been 
granted the opportunity to write about the stuff that I like. Mm, mm-hmm. Very, very rarely am I even asked to write about something I don't like. More often than not, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to do that because that's like, I know how much time it takes to write an article, for example, and I don't want to spend that much time with something that I don't like. Uh-huh. I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So if I'm just writing about stuff that I like, uh, and I get to spend time with just that thing, like I get to spend a, a week watching old action movies to write a piece about some new Gerard Butler movie. Like, of course I'm going to be in a good mood when I write that thing. Cause I just spent a week doing some shit that I really enjoy doing. Uh, and I think that's why it comes through in the writing. And has sort of the success at all changed your expectations for yourself or how do you keep the success from creeping into your process that does create such a joy? It's easy to keep it out of the process because I just, if we go back to the thing I said earlier, I'm not like seeking out any of the comments that come out of the stuff that I've worked on. I just put it out there and then I don't worry about it anymore. I don't, I don't want to read like the Amazon reviews because certainly somebody in there is saying something not nice and I don't want to see that. So in my head when I'm writing the stuff, I'm just like, I'm just writing it, trying to write it just for me or just for maybe the people who are also I know are going to like the thing that I'm talking about in this moment. Uh, so it, it the success doesn't it doesn't affect that too much. Where I do feel it though is there are there are expectations now that come with whenever I put a thing out. Like with the, when the rap yearbook came out, nobody thought it was going to do anything. Nobody at all. They print up copies. They like the publisher would do this thing where they say, "Okay, we think that this book is going to sell X amount of copies in two years." With a rap yearbook, they thought maybe 15,000 copies in two years. So, you know, 500 copies a month, that's not a, that's not a, a ton. So that's what we were expecting. And then it came out and it did really, it, did, it sold like 8,000 copies the first week or something like mm-hmm. that. Every, we all got to be surprised. They paid me very little money to write that book. It was like $25,000 before any of the agent fees or illustrator fees or taxes. Like I got a 20, I got 25,000 bucks to work on this thing. It took, two years to do. So there was no real expectations there, but it comes out and it does really well. And they're like, oh, let's do another book. And we do the basketball book. And now I'm starting to feel it a little bit yeah. because they're like, oh, if the last one, the last one did 8,000, what could the new one do? Can it do, you know, they start to, that, that starts to happen. And then that one comes out and that one's number one on the bestseller list. And then the publishers show up and they're like, let's do another one. If that one did this, what do you think this new one could do? And you start to feel, mm-hmm. you, you, you start to feel that. You feel the, the pressure of those expectations. You start to sort of internalize it. And that part is, that's when it gets scary. That's when it gets intimidating. But prior to the movie book coming out, I was really like, I was super fucking stressed out. I was having nightmares. Like consistently, something is chasing me and it's going to catch me. And I, I don't know what all of that exactly means, but that's what I was feeling at the time because I could just feel that pressure on me. And again, this is this is self-imposed. Nobody at the publisher was like, it needs to sell this many copies or else this is going to happen. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, They just pay you the money and you write the book and you sort of cross your fingers and hope. But I'm putting all of this in my head because I, f- I feel like somebody is maybe expecting it to do whatever. So that's where you really really start to feel it. Huh. Did you have you figured out a way to make that pressure abate at all? <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> there's, there's not a way. I I I wish I knew because that's uh, that's certainly the most stress I feel 
in my life. I have huh. another book that's going to come out in 2021 or whatever, I'm sure. And I'm going to go through the whole process again, and it's going to super suck. Mm. Uh, but there's, yeah, there's there's no way around it. This is, this is why I like doing these sort of little self-published projects that we do, because there's nobody else involved, and it's just me. And I'm the only one who looks at like the sales numbers for these things. And there's no outside money that's invested in it. It's mm-hmm. just me doing this. So if it flops, that's cool, because I'm the only one responsible, and I already paid my people who worked on it, it's, it's, it's fine. I don't have to get on a phone call and, and explain to somebody why I think the thing didn't work. It just, you know, I don't, you don't feel it that way, but man, when the, when the books are coming or when your other projects are working on them and you, you start to feel that shit. Yeah. I can imagine. I want to transition to one other thing because I certainly want to ask you about it before uh, you get out of here, which is another thing that makes you stand out, at least in my mind, I can only speak for myself, but I I get the impression that in a lot of people's minds as well is, you know, you are able to inject a lot of goodwill into the universe uh, at a time and in a place, specifically speaking of Twitter, where that seems maybe to be increasingly rare. I'm just curious, how do you how you explain that or how you might maybe you begin by explaining that by explaining like how you think you came to this like place of being so positive? That probably just comes from, if I had to guess, I have been lucky enough to have like several people in my life who I know care about me a great deal. Mm. And so it it probably starts there. And then uh, all of the like philanthropy stuff that we do on Twitter or wherever, I think that that is, I think that's a holdover. I think that's residue of being a teacher. I was a teacher, a middle school teacher for nine years. And when you're in that position, which is this is the best job that I ever had, when you're in that position, uh, you're in the classroom with those kids, there's like a chance every single day for you to do something that's going to be meaningful in somebody's life. Like you can see it happen. After you've been teaching for a while, you like see it in a kid's face when you go like, oh, that, that was important to that kid. You know what huh. I'm saying? Yeah. So teaching allowed for that, like you had that chance literally every day you went to work. That was always there. And it was always something I was sort of trying to chase. And when I moved over to writing, writing has been really, really good for my ego. Because nobody mm. asked me to come be on podcasts when I was a teacher. Nobody wanted my advice about anything when I was teaching. But they ask for it now because I'm a writer. So it's good for my ego. But teaching was, was better for my heart because it allowed for those, those opportunities. So if I'm on Twitter, I'm like, oh, what's, what's a way for me to like replicate that feeling? And it turns out, giving money to people makes them real happy, which <laughs> is not like some profound statement. But if, if a person has like a medical bill or they need to pay for a thing or we're just making a donation to a nonprofit and you show up with $25,000 to just give to them, everybody feels good about it. You feel good. They feel good. The people who contributed feel good. Uh, it's just, you know, it's like replicating the, that, that teacher feeling all over again in like a quick dose. I'm curious if you remember and would be willing to share any of the interactions you remember with some of your students that did have that impact on you. Oh yeah. I, I have them all cataloged in my brain that I just sort of can fall back to whenever I need to feel good about. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a good one. I had, when I was teaching for a substantial part of those nine years, I taught the, like the ESL population. So the mm-hmm. English as second language 
um, or ELL, English language learners. I, so I taught that population. I taught the special ed population. And also I taught the behavior class population, which is like these are the kids who are wilding out in, a, in all the other classes. Mm-hmm. So they take them out and they put them in a special class and you just have like all of them together. So I t- that, that was a, one of the groups that I taught. And uh, I had a kid one year, this, this boy named Jose. I'm just going to give them the, the fake name Jose. And he was part of the behavior group. Just, just a wild... Just a wild boy, total sweetheart, just as nice as you could be outside of school, but in school, causing some trouble. And so everybody was like, uh, I don't know if we want this kid in our class. I said, I want him. Send him to me. Send me Jose. And Jose would come. And every day at the beginning of class, I would stand at the door and the kids would walk in and I would give them, I don't want to shake hands because I don't like to you know, touch hands, but I'll give you either like a little fist bump or just say hello or whatever. And so Jose would be in line and I would do it to each kid and he would get there and he'd always just have like a, a scowl on his face. And so for Jose only, I started doing this thing where I would make a, you know, the thing where you can make a heart with your, with your hands, like yeah. your index fingers and thumbs. I would make a little heart like that and I'd put it to my chest and I would pretend like I was shooting it at him, like a fucking Care Bear. I'd explain wow. to him what a Care Bear was and they shoot. And I, so I would do that and I'd be like, what's up, Jose? Here you go. And I would do that. And every single time he would fucking pretend like I'm throwing a ball of paper for real, he would like knock it out of the air. So I'm shooting this pretend heart at Jose every day. What's up, Jose? Here you go. And I'll do it. And he just wouldn't smile, wouldn't do nothing. He would just knock it, just like swipe it away. And next day, hey, what's going on, Jose? I got a present for you. And then I'll do it again. I did this for fucking four months. Every day that he came to class, I see him every other day. Jose is there all the time, just over and over and over again. And every single time he knocks it away, he knocks it away, he knocks it away. We're talking September, October, November, December, finally in January, one day, completely out of the blue. Jose is in line, he's in line, he gets up. I do my little thing. Oh, Jose, welcome back from Christmas break. I brought you something. And then I do my little heart, boom, and I shoot it at him. And he's just looking me dead in my eyes. And he, for the first time ever, he doesn't swipe it away. He's just looking me in my eyes, and then he walks in the class. And I knew right then that he liked me. It's basically what that meant. Wow. And I made like a big fucking deal. I was like, Jose, Jose didn't knock it down. Because at this point, everybody knows he knocks it down. It's like a running joke. And he goes in the class, and I like made a big fucking deal about <laughs> it. He didn't knock the heart down. He let. I was just like, I was losing my mind, just all loud in the hallway. And he, and he just gets bright red in his face. It was like a very sweet moment and he's like the sweetest kid i have a picture from when he finally graduated eighth grade and we're all together just sort of hanging out uh him and his like group of kids and it was like you know those sorts of things were just really really they'll be in my head forever that's amazing that's an incredible story thank you for sharing that yeah no sweat to get you out of here this is the final question so on this podcast we always end with a favorite fuck up but in the interest of positivity i actually want to ask you a different question which is and i'm stealing this from partially stealing this from uh, a (laughs) former ringer editor of yours sam shuby okay awesome but of all the times you've bet on yourself i'm curious what you would consider like the biggest shot you ever took oh geez i think just from the and fallout is not the right word but just from all of the things that followed afterward it would definitely be sending that note to laramie Mm. because because in the background scenes of all of every single story that we've talked about of every single idea or 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 thought 
Laramie has been back there sort of propping me up, telling me, you can, you know, in my ear, you can do it. You can do it. You're the man. You can do it. You can take care of a family. You can be a husband. You can be a father. You can be a writer, whatever. Laramie has always, always been there. And, and I mean, like, very much in practical ways. Like, when I first started writing, she was editing my stuff. She worked at the school newspaper. She, like, had a background in this. So, I, I mean, in those sorts of ways. But also in, like, these big ideological, philosophical ways. She has mm-hmm. been there to just sort of propping me up. So I think if I don't send that note, if I never work up the courage to write this thing on a paper and, and pass it to her, I think everything looks much darker and much bleaker and you and I are not having this conversation right now. So so that one. Thank God you sent that note, man. Thank God. And thank God for Sam Shuby. <laughs> yes, we can say that again, certainly. Thank God <laughs> that your future wife called you and thank God for Sam Shuby. I think that's a great place to end this. All right, episode nine is a wrap. Thank you, Shay, for coming on. I think you guys can see why he would be such a great teacher, why he's such a great writer. He's got a lot of good lessons to give. Hope you guys found something valuable in there. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Jessamyn Molly. We have one episode left, so time is running out for you guys to leave a review. It's actually not true. You can leave a review anytime, but if the urgency gets you to do it, great. Pretend that you are running out of time. Please leave a review if you guys are enjoying the show. And if you're enjoying the show, come back next week. We got one more. Talk to you guys on Tuesday.